0: Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Paralegal Voice here on Legal Talk Network. I'm Carl Morrison, an advanced certified paralegal, and your host of the Paralegal Voice. Before we start today's show, we would like to thank our sponsor, NALA. NALA is a professional association for paralegals providing continuing education, voluntary certification, and professional development programs. NALA has been a sponsor of the Paralegal Voice since our very first show. And courtfiling.net. E-file court documents with ease in California, Illinois, Indiana, and Texas. To learn more, visit courtfiling.net to take advantage of a free 30-day trial. And ServeNow, a nationwide network of trusted pre-screened process servers. Work with the most professional process servers who have experience with high-volume serves, who embrace technology and understand the litigation process. Visit servenow.com to learn more. And, of course, finally, Legal Inc. Legal Inc. makes it easy for paralegals to digitally automate tasks like business formations, corporate filings, and registered agent services nationwide. Visit LegalInc.com forward slash podcast today to create your free account. Okay, guys. Boy, oh boy, have I got a special guest on today's show. It's someone that I have been following for quite a while in the Twitter universe or Twitterverse, as I like to call it, and someone that I hold in high regard. And he's an attorney. He's a paralegal professor. He's an academic influencer, and he likes to call himself an edutainer, which is true. Um, I've seen him First, Dan, and he's amazing. And so I want everyone to please welcome to the show William Murphy JD. He is a full time assistant professor in the Division of Criminal Justice, Legal Studies, and Homeland Security with St. John's University in New York. Welcome, Will thanks
1: for having me carl you are You are too kind uh, with that <laughs> intro, and uh, i'm very happy to be here. Uh, you and I, of course, connected through FP the American Association for Paralegal education, and uh, I could see that your passion and engagement in what we do educating paralegals uh, rivals my own, so i 'm very happy to be here
0: I, I, i'm humbled. Thank you so much. I, I greatly appreciate that and I could really take up the whole show. Reading your bio and all the amazing accolades. and Please and, don't. <laughs> <laughs> we'll save that for later. We'll save that for later. And I'll tell you guys, if you want to go out there, just Google William, because there's all sorts of great stuff out there. But, but anyway, uh, let's just jump right off into today's topic. Today's show is all about diversity and inclusion. And I kind of want to approach it from the 30,000-foot view. And what it really means to our legal industry. There's so much out there in the way of articles and YouTube videos and everything about diversity and inclusion. But I kind of want to take it from a more broad approach. And I recently read an article of yours, Will, that you authored for the Journal of Business Diversity in December of 2018, And it's so relevant today, and it's entitled, Distinguishing Diversity from Inclusion in the Workplace, Legal Necessity or Common Sense Conclusion. And as a law nerd, I really enjoyed your article and loved how you approached that topic. And like I said, while that article is almost three years old, it's really, it couldn't be more relevant than it is today. And so I want to start from the beginning. And of course, everyone has heard diversity, equity, inclusion, or it's more commonly known as DEI. And it's one of the most common phrases we're hearing today. And of course, in light of all the tr- tragedies that have happened over the course of the past 12 months, you know, with Black Lives Matter, Asian American tragedies, most recently, I, I can go on. But really in layman's terms, Will, can you really define just the terms diversity and inclusion? What do, what do those terms really mean?
1: Of course. And what's interesting is the article is uh, three years old. It's again relevant if it ever stopped being relevant. And if I were to go back and rename that article, I'd actually retitle it diversity is a dirty word. Because <laughs> when you think about the definitions at, in layman's terms of diversity of inclusion and of course equity. At the time I wrote the the article and did my research, equity was sort of this emerging trend. It it hadn't really taken hold yet. Mm -hmm. In fact, in a speaking engagement about a year after my article was published, we touched on equity. So that's another term that needs to be defined. You really need to look at what people say about it. So there's a scholar from Brown University, Quinetta Roberson, and she, she ran this study where she basically just asked people to define diversity, to define inclusion, and their answers, to put each in one word, the answer for diversity would be different, different. When people think of the term diversity, they think of differences, the things that are different between two different people. Whereas when you ask a group of people to define the term inclusion, the answer is together, together, united. And I think just putting it in terms of different and together kind of sums up why I start to think diversity might be a little bit of a dirty word for a variety of reasons. And and not surprisingly, her study went a step further. What she did was asked the response that people had, viscerally, just gut instinct response to the word, and the majority of, of, of people participating all had a negative response to the term diversity, overwhelmingly and on the contrast had an overwhelmingly positive response to the word inclusion. So when you start looking at the data and you see, well, everyone diversity, 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 but the actual accomplishment of diversity is decreasing substantially in the workforce, uh, in the legal field being no exception, Uh, you start to realize, well, maybe it's not about diversity. It's about inclusion. It's not about what makes us different. It's about what brings us together and how we can leverage those differences together as opposed to just acknowledging uh, what's not the same about you or I or or anyone else.
0: Exactly. And we could spend a whole show just talking about that particular study and what it really, truly means. And I encourage the listeners to go out and read the article because there's a lot of stuff that we're not even going to remotely touch in our short, you know, 30, 45 minute show that we're going to do. But when you look at those and when we talk about diversity and inclusion together in, in the workplace, in the legal industry, let's take one step back. And where and when did that concept of diversity and inclusion originate in the workplace?
1: Well, you really need to look back to the 1960s, Carl. And it's founded very much in the civil rights movement, which ironically enough, I I think when we look back on 2019, 2020, 2021, 50, 60 years from now, this will be considered, in my opinion, the second civil rights movement. And and in many ways, hopefully the results uh, follow. Because while some will argue that the civil rights movement of the 60s didn't accomplish enough, my argument is it accomplished something and something's better than nothing. So it started there, and it started with uh, President at the time John F. Kennedy, and it was an executive order. So there's the term affirmative action, which uh, we've all heard, not everybody understands what it means, but it's, it's in the common vernacular. And what that was is one line in an executive order issued by Kennedy in 1961. And basically what he was saying in his executive order was the federal government, of which he was the chief executive, must make an affirmative action to hire people from underrepresented populations. At the time, the connotation was race. It really only applied to race then, given the nature of the civil rights movement. A year later, he comes back. Another executive order expands upon it and says, it's not only the federal government, but it's anybody who does a certain amount of business with the federal government. So federal contractors of a certain amount uh, are also gonna be held to this obligation to take affirmative action to hire and employ individuals from underrepresented populations. Again, the, the, the primary uh, recipient of that benefit at the time would have been based on race. So that's where it started. Um, It wasn't really memorialized in a statute in terms of legislation until the famous Civil Rights Act of 1964. At this time, uh, John F. Kennedy had been assassinated. Lyndon Johnson is taking up the cause uh, with a, with a, uh, a Congress, a divided Congress, and they passed this act. And what it had was something called Title VII. So Title VII actually does not stand for affirmative action. What Title VII stands for is a prohibition on employment discrimination based on, yes, race, which which the movement and trend had already been going towards, but also a number of things we call immutable traits. Immutable traits, meaning you're, you're born with it. You're born with it. You can't change the color of your skin. Uh, you, you, uh, you can't change your age. You can't change a number of different things. And, and that was the, the the basis of it. Supreme Court interpretations, most recently, Zarder v. Altitude Express and a number of others have expanded these definitions of immutable traits. So now, thankfully, we have employment equality for uh, those who identify as uh, LGBTQ, which is fantastic. That case was decided two years ago. So it's grown. It's also grown by statute. So you have something like the American with Disabilities Act in the 90s, and you have the uh, the uh, the Genetic Information Non-Disclosure Act from the 2000s, so they can't discriminate based on your your genealogy and your genetics. In other words, um, so we've seen it grow from there. But for the most part, it's that Civil Rights Act from 1964, Title VII, that that stands for what we understand to be employment discrimination and its prohibition under United States federal law. States have enacted similar statutes. Other than that, not much has happened. So you have some Supreme Court rulings, you have that. It's really been the EEOC, the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, that's kind of stepped in and, and come up with ways to sort of incentivize and penalize employers for not taking sort of a voluntary approach to, to uh, inclusion efforts and equity efforts, and I hate to say it, diversity efforts, cause I say and it's a dirty word, but um, so they've kind of taken up the mantle since then, but largely on a statute level, on a, on a legislation level, it's remained unchanged. And this is again, different than affirmative action, right? Affirmative action is this small requirement for federal government and federal government contractors of a certain amount, everything else, right? The discrimination is its own issue. But then what the EEOC is doing, encouraging people to take on DEI initiatives is, is its own beast entirely. It's got nothing to do with, with the law uh, as set forth by our legislators and executive branches.
0: And you can see and understand why a lot of businesses Especially what, and this is just me anecdotally. It's not like I have data that I'm relying, you know, relying on for my opinion. But I think that's why a lot of law firms struggle with how do we incorporate, how do we handle DEI initiatives, and it it's almost like firms and corporate legal departments have gotten caught with their pants pants down, quote unquote. <laughs> That they're having to frantically try to get up to speed because they've just kind of taken sort of a hands-off approach and we're diverse, we're inclusive, but they don't fully appreciate or understand the terminology. That's my, you know, two cents (laughs) on it, so... I don't know if you agree with that or
1: there's two ways of looking at it, Carl. Right? There's you can we'll look at it at the legal profession. We'll circle back to that. But on the whole, just look at corporate America or even nonprofit America or educational America. Why do people do this? So we know that affirmative action applies to a very, very, very small percentage of employers. So why diversity and inclusion and equity? Why is this 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 hot button trending thing that everybody wants to do? And usually their reasons are all wrong. You know, you, you look to it. What, what do they do? at legal. The first thing, I've I've been in businesses where they're like, oh, we have to do affirmative action. I'm like, you do? You got X amount of dollars in in government contracts? I didn't know that. So they think they have to do it for legal reasons. They don't. Then the worst case scenario is what? The reactionary, the reactionary Mm -hmm. reasons, right? Um, They get an EEOC complaint. They get a discrimination lawsuit under Title VII in federal court, And, and that's an awful way awful way to bring about this program when it's like uh oh we're in trouble let's let's clean up our mess and uh, then, then there's better reasons. Of course there's the moral reason and while you and right. I can sit here, we're preaching to the choir, uh, having the conversation amongst the two of us. As much as you and I know it's right, it represents the world and where the world's going, there is unfortunately always going to be a percentage of people who do not accept that notion and do, do struggle with change and will be resistant to it no matter what you tell them or what you do. But that brings kind of it to the last point and the last reason why an organization of any type might might adopt this is for business reasons. Mm -hmm. Why? Because the research shows that when you adopt a really good approach to inclusion and equity and diversity, guess what? Your profits go up. (laughs) <laughs> Your markets expand. You b- create new products and new services. Why? Because you're bringing in new perspectives that can speak to, to, to new groups of people and bring in you know a, a, an entirely new audience or consumer base for whatever it is you're trying to sell. So the best way to sell it to people is, is in, a, in a business way. And that's kind of why it's done wrong. Why? Because the, the reason why it's done is, oh, we have to uh, follow affirmative action. Again, you don't. Or, uh-oh, we're in trouble and we just don't want egg on our face so that's never a good look, especially today. Now, you circle to, to law practice and law offices and the, and the legal industry. You know, what's so interesting about the legal industry is it is so archaic compared to when you look at similarly situated industries, right? right. You look at accounting or, or banking, uh, the medical field. Uh, You look at just like the benefits that an employee in one of these firms gets, say like a Price Waterhouse Cooper, a PwC versus like a Skadden Arps, one of the biggest law firms in the world. And it's like night and day. (laughs) It's like, oh, yeah, you get six, seven, eight weeks vacation at PwC. And here you have a twenty five dollars 25,000 hour billing requirement each year. Right. (laughs) um, So big law just doesn't get it. But small law doesn't either you know, when I say small law, I know there's like a medium, like there's a range of these mid-sized firms. To me, a mid-sized firm often is a small firm who's just trying to grow and they still operate like like a small firm. And, and a lot of those places, I've worked at them, you mo- you perhaps have Carl too, they run like pizza places. So right. when they're doing good good legal work for their clients and they're getting a lot of billing done and and, and they have a lot of files, at the end of the day, at the end of the day when it comes to the the human resources side or the business management side it's 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 all really poor and you're kind of seeing this with covid uh, of all things because you're seeing these bigger firms and the smaller ones just trip all over themselves, trying to trying to stay afloat. Smaller firms, they're like, "Oh my god, I'm not billing for travel anymore to court or to meetings. What am I gonna do?" Like, if your business was dependent on billing travel, that's a problem to begin right. with, right? <laughs> and and with the big firms, they're, they're suffering through through all kinds of, of similar issues. Believe it or not, so for them to think like, "Why is it a problem in the legal industry?" Well, is the problem that they're not open to it or accepting to it or doing it for the wrong reasons? No, to me the 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 problem in the legal industry is the legal – the business model of the legal industry is so desperately in need of change to begin with that they can't even think about about sincerely and genuinely implementing any kind of equity, inclusion, diversity initiatives that are going to have any positive, significant impact in the end of the day.
0: Do you think that firms, by and large, truly understand – like truly understand the difference between diversity – and inclusion? Or do they just, their mindset is, it's just all one, one concept.
1: I think, unfortunately, the the general consensus is that it's one thing, and, and therein lies the problem. It's not only one thing to them, but it's a problem. It shouldn't be a problem. It should be something you want to do for the reasons we've talked about. You've shown right. that your business is gonna go through, not through the roof, that might be an exaggeration, but your, your business is gonna increase. Your business is gonna be better for doing this, rather than it just being the trendy, sexy thing to do, or again, reactionary and, and trying to put out a good public image. So no, they don't understand it. And you can look at the ways that they go about doing it to be clear that they don't understand it, which are often, when, when you have a law firm that is trying to do it in the right way, the the methods that they use to sort of get there are are so off base and so ineffective and and in many ways counterproductive that it, it makes evident that they have not a clear understanding of what they're actually trying to accomplish in terms of separating these goals.
0: Instead of approaching it from a moral standpoint, just you need to do this, period, as a human being, not for a business purpose. Is what you're saying They most firms, most businesses aren't approaching it from that moral standpoint. They're looking at as strictly a business decision.
1: See, I don't think law firms are even approaching it as a business decision. Personally, I think it's simple. I, I mean, at the best, it's uh, it's it's for good PR. And good public image, and at right. the worst, it's reactionary. Or if you're a law firm that doesn't understand the differences between affirmative action and a voluntary uh, uh, diversity inclusion initiative, come on, <laughs> should you be? I hope I hope you're doing like wills or, or trusts or estate planning or something. Uh, if that's the case, so. I think, I think they're doing it for, for either those bad reasons or for PR. I don't think the moral or business is um, apparent to them. And I think for that reason, that's, that's why they, when they do do it, they do it wrong.
0: They're just, it's like you said, it's reactionary.
1: Yeah, I mean it it could it's not necessarily reactionary. I don't want to characterize the legal industry yeah. as doing it reactionary. I I would say it's it's either if it's reactionary, let's let's cage it this way. It's reactionary in terms of society. So, oh, let's get ahead of this. Let's say for our our public image, let's say we're the diverse firm. We're the inclusive firm.
0: Right. Right. Like I said, you know, Many firms, many businesses, they've been recently frantically trying to incorporate these DEI-type initiatives, and they're trying to get it into their operations. They're trying to get it into their recruiting aspect. But do you think these types of actions are really bringing about the true desired results?
1: No. And I mean, the study that I cite in my paper was from Harvard. So the study, I believe, is 2016 or 2017. It'll show you that it's not. But something tells me that that really hasn't changed. Uh, I feel confident in saying that. Uh, the methods that they use are, are are backwards. They're actually decreasing the amount of diversity. Now, in this time, like, right, the, the way you need to look at it is this. They're separate, but my view on it is if you have a place that's inclusive and now equitable, bringing the, the term equity into the equation, that will give you diversity. And you'll probably look around. It's not a guarantee. Is it possible to have an inclusive and equitable workplace that's not diverse? It certainly is. So I don't want to sit here and say it's it's a panacea for all our problems. But when you think at it, approach the problem from the sense that, look, if we foster a workplace culture that's inclusive and equitable, then we're gonna look around one day and we're probably gonna see the diverse, diversity we want in terms of the representation in our workforce. But, but how are they doing this, right? And this is not just necessarily legal providers, even Starbucks did this very famously two years ago. Mm-hmm. What, what is the answer to diversity? Uh, let's have mandatory diversity or sensitivity trainings. That's, mm-hmm. that's always the answer. And, and it, it is proven to be about the worst way you can approach, approach this challenge, right? And think about why, think about why. And studies bear this out, but think about why. If you're someone who, who and, and I'm not, um, I'm not, am uh, um, afraid to uh, to put it out there, who identifies as I do, as a straight white male, but I also identify as someone who's very much an advocate and an ally for these underrepresented populations. You know, I work at the second most diverse university in the entire country. So you've picked someone like me, and then you you throw me in a room and tell me I'm the devil. Uh, you know that's that that doesn't sit well with me. In other words, what does it do when you should be bringing advocates and allies in, pointing out where they are unable to understand something or don't, but can learn something instead of just making them feel like horrible people who, even though they thought they got it, really don't? Um, you, you, so there's the people that'll be turned off, but then there's the people like me that leave these things stay in wait. Did I just get punished? Did I just right. get punished? And did I get punished because of this person over here? Or this person over here? Or this person over here? So you see it has like that 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 backwards effect of taking someone um, who could be a champion for the cause and on a policy level in an, in an organization or an institution help effectuate those changes and fight for them alongside the other populations fighting for them, you've turned this person off to the point where they want nothing. Uh, another interesting study was a uh, job. They did this uh, study where two, two groups uh, of st- people who identified as straight white men were given a business task. It was to interview a potential client. It was to interview a potential client. And in the test group, the potential client, it was all about diversity, 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 diversity. In the control group, there was no mention of diversity at all. And wouldn't you know, at the end of this study, that the group that, was was interviewing the very pro-diversity organization, the pro-diversity company as a potential client, suffered unimaginably. They performed horribly and awfully, whereas the other group performed up to par, to standards, to show you. So there's that aspect to it. So this mandatory training, plus like who's honest in these things? I've sat in a bunch of them. I've sat in a bunch of them. Usually you're sitting there with your boss (laughs) <laughs> so I don't always feel comfortable speaking out when my, my boss is there. They, they're not really an open space to, to talk honestly. So they're, they're very problematic on a, on, on a multitude of levels. Another problem you have, right, is uh, grievance systems. So, oh, we'll put a, we'll put a, 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 a person in charge of this, I'll put a person in charge of this. And usually that person works where? Human resources. Well, that's problem number one, right? Who, who likes human resources? I, I don't. <laughs> human resources is kind of that department in wherever you work, be it a law firm or university, a, a, a government office, where you just want to avoid them like the plague. I don't want, I don't care even if it's a good thing. I don't want it in my file. But more often than not, if it's not HR and it shouldn't be HR, If it's not HR, who is it? Who are you grieving to? Who are you reporting this to? Your boss. Well, who sometimes is responsible for the discrimination, the harassment, or the other adverse employment action? Your boss. So what good does that do? And these are the type of things, I mean, you could go on and on, but these are the type of things that we see. This is why they, how they do it. And you look at it and you're like, wow, no wonder why it's not working.
0: Right. Exactly right. This show needs to be like a (laughs) four-part series because we could (laughs) really go down a lot of different rabbit holes. And unfortunately, we don't have enough time. So (laughs) I'm going to take a little short commercial break. So listeners, don't turn that dial. Today's episode is brought to you by Legal Inc. Legal Inc. is empowering paralegals to embrace their inner legal rock star by automating the everyday tasks that hold them back. Through their free dashboard solution, Paralegals can quickly and easily automate services like business formations, corporate filings, registered agent services, and more. Visit LegalInc.com to create a free account and check out LegalInc.com forward slash podcast for a chance to win legal rockstar swag. NALA members receive exclusive content such as the Paralegal Utilization and Compensation Survey Report, access to a members-only collaboration site, discounts on office products and car rental, access and preferred placement on a web platform for paralegal contract jobs, and access to the member-only career center. NALA members also receive discounted education and products. Join NALA today and become a part of our community. Learn more at nala.org. Welcome back to the Paralegal Voice. We've been talking with my guests, William Murphy, JD, and Will, Before the break, we were talking about businesses really fully understanding the difference between diversity and inclusion. What are some of the challenges to diversity inclusion practices that employers, law firms are really encountering? What would you say would be a couple of challenges?
1: uh, I think one challenge is uh, sometimes they don't know that they have a problem. That's one challenge. I mean, if they're doing okay business and... They you know the profit lines, are, their the buildings are good and the firm's making money, the partners are able, the equity partners are able to draw their their dividend out of the firm. They don't even know the problem exists unless they were to actually take a look at it. And you you see this a lot too. I mean, I live in New York, specifically I live on Long Island, and I see a lot of these mid-sized firms, which I'd go back to classifying as small firms that have just grown beyond the point where you could call them a small size firm even though they still function that way they don't even know they have a problem but you look around and everybody that works there is is a straight white guy and 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 they have no reason to question it cuz everything looks good so number 1 is sort of admitting you have a problem <laughs> like anything right. else like anything else in life but you need you need the i guess the impetus to want to want to do that so that that is a big challenge they face. Another challenge they face is well, we know what not to do and we talked about that before the break, these these like reporting systems mm-hmm. where you're reporting to the person who, who's responsible or these mandatory trainings, but there's big questions out there about what do you do? What do you do? So how okay, I don't do that, but but how do I handle it, and that's a multifaceted challenge because it's not one size fits all. You look like at a, a company, so it's not legal, but a big company, Costco, and they're known as having one of the best, most inclusive workplace cultures that you can imagine. Now, if I run a law firm with 30, 40 attorneys, uh, a team of, of 30, 40 paralegals to support them, does Costco's inclusion initiative fit my firm? Probably not. So you kinda gotta think outside the box. You gotta think outside the box. You need to assess what you want to, know there's a problem, but then assess, well, what do you want, if that problem was solved, what would it look like, and how do we get there? Now, there's strategies. There's things like mentoring. Mentoring programs are good, and this comes back to the the sense of, all right, they don't know there's a problem, but a good way to make them aware that there's a problem is you tell them you can make more money (laughs) if you you do understand and fix this problem, so it's, Sometimes, look, I'm one of these people that I I really, I feel strongly that I know how I'd like the world to look, but I'm not too naive or ignorant to realize how it actually does. And sometimes you need to appeal to people's self-interest to get them on board and business, increased business as a motivation is one thing. How do you communicate to that to these people is a challenge, but two is uh, mentorship programs are a good way to start accomplishing diversity. Strategic mentorships, imagine this, where you have the stereotypical middle-aged white male uh, who might be a, a partner, a junior partner or senior partner in a law firm, and you pair them you know, with a young black woman. You know, what is that, what matters to that person? And then you tie their financial incentives in terms of compensation to not only their billings, not only to the results on their cases, not only to the business they bring in, the files they bring in, but you tie that to the performance of their mentee. So you're incentivizing this person then, hey, you know, if it works, it works. What do they care about then? Well, I get an extra ten grand if my mentee wins this award or my mentee accomplishes these things. So it's selfish, yes, but it starts accomplishing the purpose. And it, what it does is it gives the young person in the equation, you know, a, a real leg up, a real leg up, a real supports a real support system uh, when it comes to the the uh, the work aspects. So that's 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 a, a challenge to us. How do we do it? Those are a few ideas, but you really need to, to sit back. You said 30,000-foot level earlier, and I think that resonates. Now, you, you gotta look back at, at, at what you want to admit you have a problem, and then look back. What do you want to accomplish and what are the best ways to do it? Is it mentoring? Is it strategic recruiting? You can't have a quota, but maybe we need to start, um, start recruiting at HBCUs or HBFUs or something like that. Maybe that's what we need to do. So, examining what exactly you want what the goal is, what it's going to accomplish for you, be it business moral otherwise, and then attack it with creative solutions that are not shown to have the opposite effect, like mandatory trainings and quotas and job tests and reporting structures.
0: You you hit on a topic that I need to have. I, it just hit me. I was like, I need to have a show on just on this topic alone is mentorship and the importance of it in light of. DEI-type initiatives, because I think that is a, a huge part. We do it as paralegal educators. We pair, you know, practicing paralegals with students as a mentor-mentee relationship so that they understand and are able to grow, the mentee grow into the role, but also the senior established paralegal also grows as an individual to see the world through the eyes of the quote unquote, I'm saying this younger paralegal, the, the the newbie paralegal. And it's the same thing with diversity, equity, and inclusion in a mentorship type of relationship. the The mentor can see the world through the eyes of the mentee and vice versa. And the two can can grow, you know, professionally, emotionally, spiritually, whatever you want to say through that type of initiative. So really I need to have a show on strictly mentorship.
1: <laughs> and I, I think it needs to be strategic though. I got to point that out. Because Correct. If you, put, yes. if you put all the women together or all, all, any members of an underrepresented population together, I don't think that serves the purpose. I think that Absolutely. creates, cl- I think that creates clicks. It needs to be a cross cultural sort of, and I mean, cultural in a cultural sense. Yes. But also in a social sense, uh, in terms of youth culture and, and, and so forth, uh, It needs to be that way. So your point, for them to see the other uh, and not create more division by kind of sectioning people off.
0: Thank you for that. Yeah, absolutely. You're exactly right. So... In your article, you talked about moving from diversity toward inclusion. So I'm going to say that again for the listeners, moving from diversity toward inclusion. And you said, I'm going to quote from your article, you said, diversity itself does not achieve its ends without inclusion as its vehicle for progress. So thinking about that quote and thinking about moving from diversity to inclusion, because people are probably going to go, wait, what? You're going to move from diversity to inclusion? What does that mean? So how does a business like a law firm or an association or whatever move from diversity toward inclusion in its practices and programs?
1: And it comes back to the definitions right diversity is what's different and inclusion is together so you need to bring people together and there's a variety of ways to do that we joked about human resources not being everyone's favorite department well this isn't the type of thing that human resources should be doing this should be its own department you know or own person if you're if you're in a small firm uh, if it's a really small firm it should be something that everybody's talking about together at the meetings so one it needs to stand on its own inclusion and to the the mentorship, it's like you should incentivize people. It should be just as important because it's shown it will increase the overall overall profitability of your business, of your firm, of your service, um, if you bring it, so it should be like, well, what's our strategy for bringing in clients? Well, what's our strategy for increasing our inclusivity? See, diversity on its own does nothing. It really doesn't. Diversity on its own accomplishes nothing. And in fact, when it's done poorly, it turns people off. It results in those clicks I was talking about. But inclusion is what it leverages all those differences between people together, but you need to get everybody on board. How do you get people on board? You make it just as important as your billables, just as important as your, as your generating of files. It needs to be that important. It needs to stand on its own. It needs to be incentivized, number one. Number two, when you're thinking about like affinity groups are a good example. A lot of, mm-hmm. that's that's one thing people do, but what are the affinity groups? It's like, oh, women lawyers, LGBTQ lawyers, uh, you know, uh, African American Bar Association. Well, you know what? Maybe instead of like separating by what makes us different, why don't we separate by uh, or bring come together with what makes us the same? Like everyone who loves action movies, or everyone who loves you know eighties uh, hair metal, or a potluck where everybody gets to, everyone likes to cook, everyone likes to eat, and you share these things. So instead of affinity groups being about You know, what makes us different? Why don't we make them about what makes us the same on a personal level? And guess what? Think about that potluck. I'm I'm in the, we love to cook affinity group at my firm. And we bring all bring in something, and we have people who represent a lot of different cultures and backgrounds. They bring in these great dishes I've never tried, and it sparks this interest in their culture and their background and their perspective on things. So we're always so focused on letting things stand aside. And really we need to focus on instead of that, what brings us together. That it needs to be about together because you know what? You could have you could again coming back to how bad a quota is you can come back and say, yeah, well, you know, 30%, 40%, 50% of our firm is underrepresented populations. That's great. But you know what? They all, this one sits there, this group sits there, and this group sits there. This group handles these files. Like, what good is that? None.
0: Right. Right. Exactly right. Will, I'm coming to my least favorite part of the show, (laughs) especially talking to you. I hate this part of the show because I don't want this (laughs) to end, but I got to wrap it up. (laughs) So I always have a fun question. Looking at all your background and stuff, it just hit me. I don't know why I haven't noticed this before. And I noticed that you're a Disney enthusiast. And I was like, wait, I'm a Disney, I'm a fellow Disney fan. I'm like, how have I not talked to Will about this in the past? So I have to know, this is my fun question for you. If you could be a Disney villain, who would you be and why?
1: Well, Disney is my religion, Carl. <laughs> uh, um, that's not an exaggeration. I would say, I gave the question some thought. I will say Gaston. I've always liked Gaston. <laughs> he's just such a goofy, you know what? You know why I like Gaston? Because he's the complete opposite of who I am. Uh, and it would be fun, it would be fun to see what it's like to live like the, the other half. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, he, he is this ego, egomaniacal, vain, nasty, selfish brute. And if I'm going to be a villain, hey, so you're, you're kind of owning up. I'm going to be bad for a day. Uh, I'd like to see what, you know, what it would be like to be uh, in Gaston's shoes. Plus, uh, if you've ever been to Magic Kingdom, I'm sure you have, if you're oh, as yeah. enthusiast as I am. So <laughs> the Gaston walk-around characters. Good story yes. here, but I'll, I'll make it quick. So... They interact with uh, the guests and the visitors, and one day, there's a famous YouTube video, one guest challenged the Gaston, the guy playing Gaston, to a push-up contest in the middle of Fantasyland. And they both go down, and the guy looked in pretty good shape, the guest, but Gaston just crushed him. Gaston's pumping these things out like he's a Marine, and and then and then like the other guy kind of bows out, pretty embarrassed with himself, and then Gaston doesn't stop. He starts doing one-handed push-ups, the actor playing Gaston. <laughs> So so not only would it be nice to just have a totally different life experience for a day that's so counter to how I am, see what it's like to be a jerk and get away with it for the most part, unless you're courting Bell, because uh, that's the only time it didn't pay off for him. Uh, I'd also like to be able to do that many push-ups. So I'm going to say Gaston. <laughs> uh,
0: so it's funny because facially I could see you doing a cosplay of Gaston. <laughs> As a person, no, I couldn't you, – you do not strike me as a Gaston individual. So, yeah, I, 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 uh, I get that. Um, me, because I'm a control freak and I can't control everything, I would want to play a character like uh, – or be a character like Dr. Facilier – Ooh. Or Ursula or Maleficent who has the <laughs> magic powers that try to control things. It never works out for any of them. They no. always fall, but it's like <laughs> just to have some power just so I could control things, you know, more would be me. That's just <laughs> how I who I would be, uh as a Disney villain.
1: Worked out for Maleficent in those uh Angelina Jolie retcons. So. That's
0: right. That right. <laughs> Well, Will, thank you so much for the conversation today. And thank you for being a guest on the show. If anyone wanted to reach out to you, what's the best way that they could contact you? Uh,
1: The best way would definitely be just tweet at me. Uh, My handle is at, Prof Murphy SJU at Prof Murphy SJU and uh, send me tweets. I love. That's how Carl and I first connected uh, between that and FP. Um, I've connected with a lot of great people, uh, both in paralegal education but also in the legal field through doing that. So uh, I love uh, people contacting me, reaching out to me, and uh, and starting good conversations like this one, Carl.
0: I will tell you, students that are out there, if you're or individuals that are contemplating going into a program, you want. Professor Murphy to be your professor. He's amazing. Um, I want to go into <laughs> into one of your classes just because you make it so engaging for the students. So thank you for your work and what you do for the industry. So truly appreciate it. Hang tight, everyone. We will be right back after this break for station identification. Looking for a process server you can trust? ServeNow.com is a nationwide network of local pre screen process servers. ServNow works with the most professional process servers in the industry. Connecting your firm with process servers who embrace technology, have experience with high-volume serves, and understand the litigation process and rules of properly effectuating service. Find a pre-screened process server today. Visit www.servnow.com. This episode of the Paralegal Voice is brought to you by CourtFiling.net your solution for electronic filing in California, Illinois, Indiana, and Texas. CourtFiling.net provides a better e-filing experience so you can spend more time helping clients. Because they know that work sometimes happens after hours, CourtFiling.net offers 24-7 phone, email, and chat support. Visit CourtFiling.net to receive 30 days of unlimited free electronic filings and see how you too can e-file court documents with ease. So everyone, I don't have a mailbag question for today, but if you do have questions, always feel free, comments, concerns, any topic, ideas for the show, always send them to me at devotedtolaw@gmail.com. gmail.com. That's D-E-V-O-T-E-D, the number two, L-A-W at gmail.com. And uh, I love to hear from the listeners. And I was looking at my... Calendar. I'm a planner and uh, have a couple of different electronic wise, as well as an actual true paper planner that I use a a spiral bound planner. And I was looking at the calendar for the next couple of weeks and I'm like, holy moly, I'm a busy boy. I've got a lot backed. I I wanted to let you all know that I'll be attending um, the National Federation of Paralegal Associations joint conference. NFPA's joint conference virtually. That's June 11th through the 13th. So if you're going to be attending, be sure and send me a note. We are actually, that particular conference is virtual, so it won't be in person, but uh, feel free to look for me virtually on at that conference. And then I'm going to be presenting on certifications to the California Alliance of Paralegal Associations during their uh, annual conference, which is on June 26th. Then I'm going to be attending, of course, the wonderful NALA's annual convention. Uh, It's also virtual this year, July 22nd through the 24th. And I know they've got amazing things packed. And I know a ton of people have already registered, but you still can register for that particular conference. And um, later this year, I'm actually going to be also presenting with my cohort, Christine Castillo Suarra at the International Practice Management Association's annual conference in October, October 13th through the 15th. Not quite sure if it's virtual or in-person, but we're both looking forward to presenting there. And so, like I said, needless to say, Carl is going to be a very busy man. Um, And and if you're going to be attending any of these conferences, whether it's in-person or virtually, say hi. Send me a little chat button, chat feature in those virtual conferences and say hi and let me know you're online or if we're in person, come up and say hi. I always love connecting with my paralegal pals, so be sure and do that. And that's all the time we have today for The Paralegal Voice. So if you have questions about today's show or my guest, William Murphy, email them to me at devotedtolaw and stay tuned for more information and in upcoming podcasts for exciting paralegal trends, news, and engaging and fun interviews from leading paralegals and other leading legal professionals. So, thank you for listening to the Paralegal Voice, produced by the broadcast professionals at Legal Talk Network. If you'd like more information about today's show, please visit LegalTalkNetwork.com. Find Legal Talk Network on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn, or download Legal Talk Network's free app in Google Play and iTunes. And reminding you that I'm here to enhance your passion and dedication to the paralegal profession and make your paralegal voice heard. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of nor are they endorsed by Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, or subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer.